But be careful about overdoing it and not stressing the systems because the systems were inherently designed to be stressed so that we can overcome those adversities, right? Without food, we don't just die off. Without sleep, we right. don't just die. With the temperature, we don't mm -hmm. just fall apart. This is all through evolution, right? So just be careful about making your life too comfortable. And I'm not saying, you know, go and uh, work in a boot camp or anything. I'm just saying that there's enough science to, to uh, alter these molecular signals through interventions, which as you correctly said, they're natural. I'm Sadia Tariq, and you're listening to Thani, the podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Masin Habib, and his philosophy is Rethink Health. Anyone can enjoy the benefits of Dr. Habib's integrated and holistic approach of state-of-the-art medicine and complementary treatment methods. Dr. Habib uses the tools of the best in the healing arts to provide precision, diagnosis, primarily drug-free treatment and treatment success that far exceeds traditional medicine. In our chat today, Dr. Habib describes to us our internal anatomy, how the gut and the brain are connected, what is healthy bacteria, what is the difference between ketosis and intermittent fasting? He speaks about the benefits of sleep, the neurological states that our brain goes through when the gut is not looked after, when the sleep is not looked after. This podcast is meant for those who want to understand the power of the brain, the power of the gut, the power of maintaining and keeping simplified lifestyles. Dr. Habib, thank you so much for being on Dhani. Thank you very much for inviting me. Of course, you will uh, be able to give your own introduction better. Um, however, from what I understand is that it employs and deploys the, the client slash patient and the practitioner to get together, put their heads together and work uh, in an integrative, non-invasive uh, non-medicinal way as much as possible. My first question is that bringing the heads together means that we uh, deploy the brains. So, and, and we all know that the brain is a very, very important, useful um, organ of the human body. And in recent times, there has been a lot of literature and a lot of um, talk on the power of the brain of how we, we have the power over the brain. So yeah. please explain to me really this phenomena that how, what, what, do, what do we mean by this, the power of the brain and how can we have power of the, of the brain? Okay, great. Uh, it's, it's a very broad question, but that's okay. And because it's very broad, um, I just want to be humble in saying that what I'm, I'm, the things I'm going to discuss, although medically very, very important, they're not the end all or be all of the power of the brain. Namely, you know, the ability to do meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, there's so many angles on the brain. I'm going to talk about the medical version, the measurable things, because um, outcomes are very, very important. But in our scientific uh, uh, realm, we need to have observable metrics and so the, the reason why it's so important and the power of the brain has to be 
harnessed is that things like strokes have been kind of devastating once they've occurred. And if the body doesn't, if the brain doesn't recover in the early few days, then the recovery is very, very poor despite rehabilitation. And what's even more frightening is that dementia and cognitive decline cannot, uh, uh, with normal medicines, uh, um, be treated. So that's very, very frightening because if that's the case, then how you opened up to saying I'm a practitioner that use non-medical medicinal ways. Well, for dementia, that's the way it's turning out. All the multi-billions of dollars being spent on research have uh, come up with failed drugs. So what I will do is start by talking about the kind of physiology or the pathophysiology of dementia and then go okay. into a little bit of stroke and then how to repair it um, using natural ways. Right. So um, just the dementia. To keep it simple, I would say that preceding dementia, there is inflammation in the brain. And as a result of the inflammation, the special cells in the brain that try to recover from it, called microglial cells, they end up depositing sticky proteins, which we call amyloid protein and tau cells. So inflammation, as we know it today in the brain, cannot be treated with any medication. And as I said, most of the medications that have been in research have failed, primarily because mm -hmm. we haven't asked the question, why is the inflammation coming? So although we don't Correct. know why there's inflammation, there is an environment in the brain that leads to inflammation, as opposed to an environment where inflammation doesn't happen. And okay. that simply is the ecosystem in the brain. So even the brain has a bacterial flora, and a diverse okay. bacterial flora in the brain is beneficial, and those people do not get dementia. Mm -hmm. The people with a lack of diversity in the brain of the beneficial bacteria tend to get the dementia. They also have a preponderance mm -hmm. of a specific bacteria called micrococcus. So if it was just as simple as taking a probiotic, we'll be, we would be way ahead. But what it does do is give you a little bit of insight about this ecosystem, not that different to the ecosystem in the gut, because very similarly, when you have inflammatory bowel disease or other health issues that lead to inflammation, you see a lack of diversity of beneficial bacteria and right. an imbalance in certain microbes that are synonymous with not only inflammatory bowel disease, but inflammation around the body. And so there's the similarities. And just like there is no magic pill for the inflammatory bowel disease and other inflammation, because as you know, even some physicians incorrectly assume non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are the answer. NSAIDs is the shortened version we use in the USA. That is not the way to reduce inflammation. You have to understand where inflammation comes from. And by altering that environment, the body stops producing inflammation. Inflammation is not an external thing. It's an internal thing. It's an imbalance of the immune system allowing the expression of inflammation. Right. And yeah, so that's one area. So when we talk about the power of the brain, that we can harness that power by not only getting the right balance of bacteria, we have to think of it in, in a few different layers. Mm 
And the first layer is understanding that there could be a breach in the blood-brain barrier. So that's a special lining around the brain that keeps the outside world outside. Namely, what's floating in the blood doesn't all get to the brain and vice versa. What's in the brain doesn't just percolate into the blood circulation. They're very tight, very uh, controlled environment, and that is controlled by the blood-brain barrier. However, what we realize is that even though we don't have a diagnostic code for leaky brain, uh, there will be something in the form of a leaky brain uh, down the pike because we already have identified that when we have a leaky gut, there's a whole host of complications and that's all a, a different barrier. It's a gut barrier and the blood-brain barrier is, is some, in some ways quite similar. The mm -hmm. other thing to understand, whether it's dementia or any other neurological problem, is that the fuel for the brain kind of transitions as we get a little bit older. So when you're younger, it can function quite well in a very active metabolic way with glucose and sugars. And then as we get older, because its metabolic activity probably changes, is not as active, it does not, in fact, like glucose, in fact, it may actually be detrimental. In fact, the brain wants fuel through the form of ketones which is the byproducts of fat, okay? So right. that's why some people will um, use the terminology in terms of dementia as type three diabetes because that fuel to the brain, even though it doesn't share the same metrics as the blood testing for making a diagnosis of diabetes, that exquisitely sensitive brain is susceptible to a slier, slightly higher sugar level and it becomes toxic to the brain and it okay. creates the environment that leads then to dementia. Mm. So we talked about the mm. different layers, which is the blood-brain barrier. We talked about the fuel. We look at the brain, similarly to the other organ system, is that there's an environment like the bacterial flora that can be beneficial or, or detrimental, which then lead to inflammation. And the final one is what we call co-infection. So like with dementia, what we found is that because of these abnormalities, multiple abnormalities in the brain, that it, the brain has co-infections of certain viruses. And so we don't know as of yet whether the viruses are the cause of the problem or they're, they're just innocent bystanders occupying a space because there is a less than healthy environment, so they occupy that space. So the truth is going to be a little bit of everything. And so the next part of the brain, which is, say, the, the say a stroke. Now, uh, before a stroke, um, most strokes are what we Sorry, call can I just cut you yeah. here and ask you a question? So, so yeah, the what um, the, the brain flora, as you're saying, what do we need to, to to keep it healthy? Number two, what causes the the gaping holes, or say, what makes that um, blood brain barrier porous, so that the exchange is um, somewhat imbalanced? Yeah. Okay, let's start with the blood-brain barrier because I just want to make it clear because as a, as a medical professional and an MD, uh, I have to make sure that um, what I'm going to tell you is accurate. So the, as of now, we sure. don't have a diagnostic code for any disruption in the blood-brain barrier. That doesn't mean it's not oh, there. We just okay. don't have a diagnostic code. So strictly speaking, when I describe a blood-brain barrier, it's more theoretical. But what is theoretical today will be confirmatory. confirmatory in a near future, okay? Just like leaky sure. gut uh, was uh, around long before we made a diagnosis, 
in the same way a leaky brain is there, but we just haven't uh, given any defined parameters. So what do I mean by that? Um, a blood brain barrier is a structure that keeps the body's um, circulation separate from the brain circulation because the, mm -hmm. the environment for the brain is similar yet quite different. Uh, which will lead me to at some point in our conversation talk about how we've discovered what we call the brain thermal tunnel so we now can measure the brain temperature particularly during the sleep cycle when it's supposed to drop and when people do not have that healthy drop in brain temperature that's when they wake up unrested with a lot of uh, sleep disorder related problems but so blood brain barrier right. is not a defined terminology but it doesn't take much uh, convinced to say that there has to be a breach to allow that lack of bacteria, flora, and inflammation because those signals can only get there because something is uh, below the neck is allowing it. So that's where we say that there's a lot of similarities between the gut and the brain. And in fact, mm. we will finish hopefully by telling you that the butt, gut and the brain are interconnected in ways that we mm. cannot separate. And that's why it's so important to be able to break through the brain because, you know, so far it's such a complex area that we're just starting to break through in terms of measuring the brain uh, temperature, starting to look at mm. and recognize the electrical activity of that brain, not only in the wake cycle, but in the sleep cycle, trying to sleep figure cycle. out patterns. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so I didn't answer the one about the healthy. So look, uh, there is no defined healthy brain. All we can say is that there is a pattern of a brain that is less than healthy, like dementia, and there's a pattern that, that is visible in people who don't have dementia. And so, and I just gave you those patterns, which is that in the environment where you have inflammation and, and a lack of bacterial diversity, you're going to have problems that lead to like dementia. Conversely, in people that have good bacterial flora, and, and no inflammation, now uh, they're not likely to have dementia, but there is no way to go in there and uh, study an individual basis. This is all research level things, but the things which we'll talk about later, the non-invasive ways to measure the temperature, the non-invasive ways to look at the blood flow in the brain, those are the new uh, breakthroughs that I think we can harness to sh show you the power of the brain in, in not only preventing dementia, but also maybe fixing strokes and other neurodegenerative problems. So what I was saying about stroke is that majority of strokes are what we call thrombotic. That means a clot forms in it. And, and that 80% of the time, about 20% of the time or slightly less is when we'd say hemorrhagic. That means there's a bleed going on in the brain. And the rare ones are things like clots that come from below the neck, like whether it's the neck itself or the heart, we call those thromboembolic strokes. But um, Irrespective, uh, what the main point I'm trying to say is that once you have a stroke, just like you have a heart attack, the area of tissue that that blood vessel supplies may be compromised or inevitably die. And so when the, those neurons are dead, they're dead. So what happens, say, with a stroke, after somebody has a stroke, if they can recover their symptoms within the first 24 hours, that's a very, very good sign because what will have happened is either that blood vessel opened up by itself or the collateral circulation was enough to support the uh, blood circulation to that part of the brain. Does that, does that make sense so far before I continue? Yes, yes, totally. Okay, video. so, yeah. yeah. So now if you go into the next few days and start to get recovery, that's also a good sign. 
And so we say up to a, the week, the first, first 24 hours are critical. The, the most recovery you get will be the most promising. And any time after that, the return on investment is very much lower. So a week out is still early. A month is kind of hopeful. You know, six months, you're not going to get a lot of that recovery. And a year is like almost impossible to get back as we used to think. But now, uh, beyond research, what they're saying is that if you can electrically stimulate that, those dead parts of the brain, you can actually recover from a stroke. And even hmm. years after a stroke, um, there was some other promising, um, promising interventions where um, a, a doctor in Florida was using an off-label anti-inflammatory medication that he injected to the back of the neck because after people have had a stroke uh, uh, years later, not only are they left with the deficit, they're left with muscle spasms and many other you know, um, similar uh, deficits. What this doctor found is that by blocking inflammation using a, a type of anti-inflammatory medication, which was approved for rheumatoid arthritis inflammation, he actually saw some benefits, uh, not universal, not uh, the same in everybody, but uh, look, any benefit in anybody who's had a stroke that, uh, the, and the deficit had lasted for uh, more than a year is, is a benefit that they would not have got. And so what this anti-inflammatory medication did at the end uh, when it was injected in the base of the neck is that the belief is that, uh, that it circulated into the brain and reduced inflammation, which allowed the recovery of the neurons. We call that neuroregeneration. And so right. in terms of electrical stimulation, there is a te uh, for technique called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And so what it does is creates from that magnetic field an electric current that can stimulate and regenerate the brain. So we know that this is mm -hmm. an exciting area because we also understand there are many other ways to stimulate regeneration in the brain and that we describe as BDNF, you know, brain neurotropic growth factor. And so that can come when you exercise, that can come with you when you change your diet, that can come when you intermittently stress your body. And uh, using the uh, TMS, the transcranial magnetic stimulation, is a different form form format. And so my principle right. about whether I'm dealing with dementia or stroke is to understand it in a three-dimensional manner, not to leave the audience thinking that TMS is the best thing, although it's very, very good, not to say that um, this injection in the base of the neck, this anti-inflammatory, this is not an NSAID. This is an immune-blocking um, um, uh, uh, medication which blocks something called TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is an inflammatory marker. And that's what this anti-inflammatory, true anti-inflammatory biological agent does. And then, as I was telling you, that the other areas of the brain that we need to think about is that you need to understand the fuel to the brain and alter that. You need to understand that if there's inflammation in the brain, it's coming from elsewhere. You need to stop that before you embark mm. on anything for the brain. So what I'm saying here is that no matter what the problem is, whether it's dementia or stroke or any other neurodegenerative conditions like ALS, um, and um, you know MS, you have to understand that there's an environment that needs to be changed, and it should be a three-dimensional environment, which means that not only what's in the brain but outside the brain, because they're connected. As uh, I said before, that the gut and the brain are intertwined, and then uh, not only do the signals in the gut affect the brain, but the signals in the brain then affect the gut. We call that the enteric uh, sensory cell, and uh, that is connected to the vagus nerve, and that goes straight to the brain. And that vagus nerve can travel down from the brain 
even uh, down to the heart and the diaphragm. So you see how powerful this connection is between the gut and the brain. So basically, you're saying that whatever neurodegenerative situation is in the body, it is important to understand that it is not just the brain, but it could be uh, elsewhere as well, which means that we have to look at the entire chain. Yes, exactly. exactly. And not right. uh, just jump to the treatment because then we fall into the same trap of diagnosis and treatment. We never ask the question, why were you at risk of a stroke, right? And we know that hypertension is the biggest driver. But then you can ask, well, why do you have hypertension? So we can go on the why list. And that's, that's the essential difference between a holistic practitioner like myself, who's an MD, and a regular practitioner who's allopathic. He, do, he doesn't ask the whys too much. It's like, well, it's because you have blood pressure. So I'll just give you a blood pressure pill. It doesn't ask why. You know, why did right. you have dementia? It says, well, no, we don't know why. So why don't we just try uh, dementia medication? No, that you must always ask the why. And even when there is no obvious answer, there is enough an information to join the dots together. There just is. Mm-hmm. What is the com- most common answer that you get to, the, uh, to your whys? Did you have one particular diagnosis in mind? Why in the case of dementia, yes. Yeah, so that's a very tricky one uh, because the research is ongoing and and we've been researching this for a decade now, obviously longer, but really heavily, billions and billions of investment, not in the conventional world, but in the the Silicon Valley world where, you know, they're into the brain and longevity. And uh, because what the the, the main... um, the deficit that I see is that they are trying to treat that uh, or reverse the amyloid, and that's downstream. It didn't ask the why, it's inflammation. So uh, as of yet, I'm not sure that they're still looking at the treatment for the inflammation in the brain. As I told you, this doctor in Florida was using an off-label anti-inflammatory medication, and he got some very positive results, which is much better than no results, right? So, right. uh, and we know uh, that inflammation in the brain is happening because of a lack of diversity of um, the, the beneficial bacteria in the brain. Now, I'm as a doctor, I can't tell you that lack of diversity in the, uh, of beneficial bacteria in the brain is the cause of inflammation because I don't have that information. It's just an association. However, I'm not paralyzed by saying just because I can't give you a diagnosis doesn't mean I can't help you in saying, well, you right. have cognitive decline. And the chances are that you're putting the wrong fuel in the brain. The chances are that you probably have inflammation in the brain. The chances are that the blood-brain barrier can't be as healthy as somebody that didn't have it. It's just, it's just common sense that there is less than optimal environment. And we need to try to optimize it with the best information that we have right now. We just established a connection between the brain and the gut. A healthy gut is a healthy brain and vice versa, which means right. a healthy gut needs nutrition yeah so yeah, then in terms of nutrition what are we looking at what yeah. is the good fuel yeah. and what is the yeah. bad fuel right right let's just start with another analogy that might um, connect uh, the dots in some slightly different neurological problems so the neurotransmitters that we describe when we talk about anxiety disorder depression which are very you know they, they, those diagnoses may be even more common than stroke frankly right very common sure Absolutely. Oftentimes, uh, uh, you know, undiagnosed, it's, it's happening. Mm-hmm. And of the mm-hmm. times it's being diagnosed, it's being maybe medicated, hopefully with 
therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and other modalities, I hope, right? And now we can go to the gut because those neurotransmitters, so majority of the serotonin, which are the things that are stabilized mood, is produced in the gut and not in the brain. The majority of melatonin, which is, you people know, good for sleep, majority is made in the gut, not the brain. And the gut is connected to the liver, and the liver methylates and processes many, many, many pathways. And that's an integral part of these neurotransmitters. So, so that gives you a little sort of insight into how the gut and the brain is connected, right? Because people often mm -hmm. think that these melatonin must be coming from the brain and serotonin must be coming from the brain. And so people may experience symptoms in the gut, and that is not good. And most of the common symptoms are either classified, and unfortunately it's a bad classification, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, and in fact, we know that that irritable bowel syndrome has something to do with a bacteria imbalance because there's actually a antibiotic medication out on the market that uh, resolves that. So there's a clue right there that irritable bowel is not just symptoms, it is to do with the bacterial flora. So then there is acid reflux. Sometimes we just refer to that as gastroesophageal acid reflux. And um, if you describe it as local problems, gastritis, inflammation of the gut, uh, esophagitis, inflammation of the esophagus, and duodenitis. But bottom line, these are, I just give you the names of what's being thrown around. <clears throat> now, the important thing to understand here is those are just symptoms. And uh, for right. acid reflux problem, like gastritis or esophageal reflux disease, you get a medication to suppress the acid, which is good in the short term, but not a solution in the long term, because if you stop the medication and don't change anything, it's more than likely you'll still have the problem. And as I said, with irritable bowel syndrome, there's a whole host of symptomatic relief that block chloride channels and other channels to minimize, say, diarrhea or support constipation, because irritable bowel is a is a constellation of symptoms like constipation and loose stools and bloating and gas and it interchanges but as i told you there's a medication on the market that that can, is an antibiotic and it relieves a significant number of irritable bowel which tells you that you know instead of treating the symptom we should really get to the root of all of these gastrointestinal problems now the interesting thing that you're going to find is that even if you do not have those symptoms you could still have a lack of good bacterial flora in the gut, you could mm -hmm. still have an abundance of less than beneficial bacteria, you might still mm -hmm. have leaky gut. And that's kind of frightening because if you don't have symptoms and you can still have it, if you have symptoms, God knows what the ecosystem is like in the gut. But hopefully people understand that because we're finding these similarities in the brain, and right now, they're just associations. It's not the same bacteria in the brain as the gut. But what we do know is that people who eat well will nourish the good beneficial bacteria. People that mm -hmm. eat, uh, eat refined and processed food will not nourish the good beneficial bacteria. So that's one right. part. Right. And for people that have acid reflux, ironically, they do have acid that is going into the esophagus or creating a problem in the stomach because the lining is weak. And ironically, it's because they do not have adequate or optimal digestive enzymes. Mm -hmm. And then we have 
layers in the intestines called mucus lining, which right. if you don't build up the mucus lining, then the bacteria will eat them as fuel. So when you right. eat foods that are high in soluble fiber and foods like oats and blueberries, what they do is that the bacteria will then produce the mucus on the lining, not only protecting the lining, then the bacteria can also be fed appropriately, won't start to eat into your lining. Because eating into right. the lining gets closer to the mucosal lining, which is the barrier that we've been talking about, the gut barrier. The leaky mm -hmm. gut is the final step before, um, between the gut and the blood. And so then what we say is endotoxins can now enter the bloodstream and we describe them as lipopolysaccharides, they create a whole host of immunological consequences. So let me give you a little change in sort of speed to tell you that just recently a study came out to say people with rheumatoid arthritis that were given antibiotics, say for UTI, using sulfur-based medication or a class of antibiotics called fluoroquinolone, both antibiotics, by the way, like Cipro, they actually created more flares in the rheumatoid arthritis. That's just an association, Whoa. but it's a very powerful association that when you of disrupt course. that gut flora, you are now creating the inflammation that we just said is a, a joint inflammation. It started in the gut. Now, I, right. as a doctor, I'm not allowed to tell you that's the cause. It's just an observation, but uh, yeah. it, it just takes common sense to understand that keep the gut healthy, keep the mucus lining healthy, don't allow the gut to get leaky and, and, and protect it with good microbes, beneficial microbes, and then keep the stomach environment healthy. So let me give you another scenario. So we used to believe that the acid-lowering medications were totally safe. They are. And according to the American Centers for Disease Control, CDC, we recommend lifestyle changes first. And if that doesn't work, then we give the acid-lowering medication. The best, one, best of them are called proton pump inhibitors. It literally shuts off the acid produce, production in the stomach. Mm. And so hopefully what people do is within the six weeks that is approved to be taken, it's only approved for six weeks. Once you stop it, and a doctor should Whoa. take the measure to try to stop it and see if you can manage without it. And if you can manage without it, then hopefully you'll have made the changes that will keep you in the right path. Oftentimes people rely on the medication as the so-called treatment, looking for, expecting a cure and not changing anything else and finding that when they stop the medication, the symptoms come back. So inevitably, majority of people, a significant number, stay on the medication for more than the recommended period of time. And that mm. is not good evidence-based medicine, by the way, for people who are medical listening in. Good medical practice means you follow the guidelines. Now, just because those guidelines are failing you should not paralyze you. It should encourage you to go find out how to fix the gut in the first place, right? Try to find somebody that's going to fix the problem. And if the practitioner that you have has used up all his tools, go find another practitioner that has another bag of tools, right? Nobody, mm -hmm. not even me, knows all the answers. So... The best sure. thing a doctor can tell you is that this is the best that I can offer. And hopefully he said yeah. that he or she will say, you know, you might want to find somebody else. And, and never believe anybody says, that's it. There's no other treatment. Nobody can say that. 
not but nobody can say there's no other treatment we may not be aware of it there's probably somebody that knows. of course it just may not be yeah. me so yeah. so let's go back to the consequence of shutting down the acid that acid in the stomach should not be shut off for a long period of time because mm-hmm. if you shut off the acid in the stomach then the bacteria in the the in the mouth leading to the nitrates that go into the stomach can't liberate nitric oxide without nitric oxide you can't get vasodilation vasodilation is a fancy word saying your blood vessels open up when your blood vessels open up more blood flows to all the parts of the body and when your blood vessels open up you get lower blood pressure so being on these medications that shut off the acid you are actually predisposing yourself to developing blood pressure this is one of the whys people get blood pressure many mm-hmm. many causes of blood pressure it's not just genetics in fact most people do, with blood pressure don't have genetics in fact most people with heart attack don't get genetics in fact most people with cancer don't have genetics for it most of the people mm-hmm. create the environment that allows these things to take place very profound statement it takes a lot of thought to think through that so going back to the acid the acid is also beneficial in absorbing minerals. So if you don't absorb minerals, then you can have weaker bones. So lo and behold, now after many, many decades, we are now admitting precipitate or exacerbate osteoporosis because you're not absorbing minerals, correct? And um, mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm. ex- uh, uh, precipitate hypertension and heart disease. And they're not the biggest drivers, but nevertheless significant. And the other benefit mm. of having acid in the stomach is as a protection, a guardian against invading microorganisms and viruses. Remember of the course. brain when we said that when you have this inflammation, there's a lack of diversity, but there are these co-infections yeah. because there's an environment in, in there that's allowing these so-called opportunistic infections, right? And in the gut, the same thing will happen. If you don't have acid, some bugs that are not, they're opportunistic, they're going to come in. That's part of the lack of bacterial diversity of beneficial bacteria, and it has downstream consequences. So changing gears uh, one more time is that we know these microbes, which you can either feed them well with good, wholesome, nourishing foods, or you can stifle them with processed foods and junk food. These microbes, given the right environment with the right fats and the right uh, fibers that are soluble and insoluble, with the right food uh, items, particularly good healthy fats that are high in short-chain fatty acids, you're nourishing the bacteria, and those bacteria themselves turn on signals to improve your metabolism. So the gut health is has everything to do with weight loss and weight gain, and not much to do with calories in and calories out, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it's all about what where those calories come from so sure it's even got it important to put those calories in terms of good food so if you choose the right food groups you may not have to and i say may because you know there's always exceptions to every rule for the significant number of people you may not have to count calories just put the right foods in you'll nourish the good bacteria they'll send the right signals your metabolism will be raised and you have global benefit for the blood vessels for the heart for the brain every part of the body Mm. Wow, uh, that was a one-on-one. 
on, on the gut. Okay, so you spoke about short uh, chain fatty acids. Yeah. Um, can you name a few? Which, yes, I mean, short, uh, we, yeah, short, short chain fatty acids, so we call them like acetate, um, butyrate. Butyrate is the more beneficial, beneficial short chain fatty acids. And, um, and they are present in? In the gut. They're already there. Um, but you'll get an abundance of the uh, of the the good uh, short chain fatty acids if you eat the right food. So having um, good quality fats uh, is one way. So that's why you hear you know like coconut, right? Coconut is very fatty, and historically you know fat has been such a demon. And so you know that that's pretty old news now. If people are still saying that they're way behind the times, that's like 1990s, right? So um, now, um, then people are afraid of gaining weight. Well, if you nourish the bacteria in your gut and then they send the positive signal, you actually won't gain the weight unless you eat an extraordinary amount of fat, which by the way, people like myself can. So sometimes I go get a little carried away with nuts. So, um, so the, my, my aim is to say that, first of all, those nuts are beneficial. There's no sugars. There will uh, be nourishment to, to your body in terms of literally the cholesterol that your body will use to make hormones and cell membranes, but also to fuel the bacteria. And as I said, fat gets converted to ketones and ketones are the better fuel for the brain. Those are all the positives. Now, mm -hmm. if you have nice mm -hmm. roasted nuts and it's slightly salted, you might end up eating a few too many. So that's where the calories may count. I mean, I say calories, but we don't, we don't know the mechanism, but I, I do get carried away. So what I try to do is make sure that I might eat more raw nuts so they're not as tasty and you know there's a limit to what you have mm -hmm. so you know the idea is to get a serving that's moderate so the size of your palm is a reasonable way to do it um and so mm -hmm. the fats from avocado the fats from nuts and seeds the fat from coconut olive oil you know the good quality egg yolk these are really really good nothing to be afraid of really moderation i don't say live on five avocados a day some people go a little sure. crazy and have like seven egg yolks a day. I just wouldn't do that myself. I would uh, look for that. Just like diversity in bacteria, you should look for diversity in your food as well. You know, you also spoke about the fact that studies have been to change uh, the lifestyle rather than um, yeah. quilt over or cover mm. or layer the situation with, with medicines. So in terms of lifestyle change, if you, if you if you are presented with a situation of of say dementia or or mm. cancer, mm. what are the top three things that you are looking out to uh, tell your patient that That's these a, are the top yeah. three things that you fantastic, need to change? Fantastic question. I, I I may not even come to number three. Let's just start with number one: keto keto <laughs> diet. Right now, I'm not saying it because mm -hmm. it's a fad. I'm telling you because there's lots of data to show you how beneficial it is. For the brain right for the reasons i said that you know the brain wants uh, different types of fuel after the age of 30. so ketones right. are produced when your body breaks down fats or when your body has no access to sugars it'll get it from ketones you can mm -hmm. actually live without any carbohydrates at all uh, but the fact right. is that even vegetables have some degree of carbohydrates and most of it's complex which is the beneficial because whether you believe it or not, your body knows how to get the fuel, but it's going to go for the easy fuel mm -hmm. first. If you want to put in the refined stuff, it's going to go with that one first. And once right. the stores of those refined stuff are gone, then the body will find uh, ways to break it down. And 
So let me go into a study that, so keto means that if you have a diet that's rich in fat and protein, four to one, with uh, very little carb, um, the amount of carb that you're supposed to stay away from is in the order of 70 grams. I would say a little bit lower would be better, and maybe 50 grams. And the reason I say that is because when this keto diet was first um, um, evaluated, it was in the Mayo Clinic. And the doctor there in the 1920s, 1923, he found that seizures went down dramatically on the keto diet. So mm -hmm. it goes back to that fuel in the brain, right? And um, so just to give you an idea what 30 grams of carbohydrate look like, it's one bagel. I mean, in America, we eat bagels. I don't. Um, they're pretty tasty, though. Um, the other one, which people universally will understand, uh, two slices of bread uh, will amount to about 30 grams of uh, carbohydrate. So if you go to more right. than two uh, pieces of bread, you might break the keto. But um, strictly speaking, about 50 grams, uh, is, less than 50 grams of carbohydrate will keep you in keto. And uh, without okay. the carbohydrates, uh, the fat is the predominant four to one of, with the protein. That's what we say. Now, so the ultimate keto is fasting. If you're not eating, not fat, not protein, not carbohydrate, you're in ketosis. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. There's some confusion yes. sometimes because, uh, you know, because both are very, very interesting diets. I won't even call them a diet because neither one is telling you to restrict anything. Diet to me means restricting something. Restricting never right. works. In fact, all diets have failed because it's one form of restriction or another. I just say choose the right uh, uh, food groups and you won't need to be dieting generally, okay? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. the keto diet, as we said, is, has been studied. It's been studied uh, for neurological health. So in the group with dementia that went on the keto diet, there was a significant improvement in brain function. They used mini mental state. There, there were some... Uh, metrics that they could use in figuring that out. So we have evidence for that already. And then let me just give you an idea that uh, how ketosis um, uh, and intermittent fasting can have positive impacts on inflammation. Again, they're not mm. directly correlated because they haven't been studied together. They've all been studied separately, just like dementia has been studied separately with inflammation. So let's see if you can sure. follow the, uh, the flow here. So with intermittent fasting, um, the study that was done uh, using like 500 calories, but those calories were definitely not from refined sugars. That's 500 calories in a 24-hour mm -hmm. period utilizing soups and bars. Those bars were predominantly made of fatty coconut. So they were able to keep mm -hmm. the, the patients yeah, you know, fairly uh, satisfied by putting food in which were fatty, so it satisfied them by having like a thick um, stovetop made soup so they got the satisfaction the satiety but they only got 500 calories in a given day nothing was refined predominantly fat so they were in ketosis more than likely however this mm -hmm. intermittent fasting was only for five days out of a 30-day month right mm -hmm. so that's not a lot especially when you've been given you know 500 calories a day and um and for just um did i say three i said five days in a month right five days out of a 30-day month and what they did was followed these patients for three consecutive months where for the remainder of those 20, um, you know, 25 days, they could have their usual diet, no restrictions, no special arrangements. So five days, they're taking this special product, 
to keep the calories to 500 calories, but it was uh, full of fats that kept them in that intermittent fasting state. And right. they did that five days out of third day for three consecutive months. There was not only lower blood pressure, lower weight, lower abdominal girth, there was also lower sugar, there was also lower inflammation. Bearing in mind, wow. there is no single drug that exists to lower that type of inflammation. A little different to the right. inflammation I talked about, rheumatoid arthritis, that's a different inflammation. Inflammation is not sure. just one size fits all. It's a very complex field. We're just getting into the beginning of it. But isn't that amazing mm -hmm. that your intermittent yes, fasting totally. is the only non-medicine which is outperforming any medicine, which is none, for that particular inflammation, if people want to know what that is, it's called HSCRP, highly sensitive C-reactive protein. And um, as I keep saying that, you, the inflammation in the brain may be slightly different, but it's in that mm -hmm. spectrum. You have to understand that spectrum. Right. Now, there is mm -hmm. no inflammation in the body that I know of that didn't come from the body itself. You have to find out why it's coming and change something. And so that's right. why medication alone can never be the answer. That's probably why we're having so much difficulty in finding that blockbuster medicines for dementia. There is no blockbuster mm -hmm. medicine for anything as far as I'm concerned, because everything mm -hmm. happens in three dimension and most medicines work on two dimension. Here's a number or here's a pathway. I'm going to block it or I'm going to raise it or I'm going to lower it. The body does not work in two dimensions. Therefore, there is no medicine that can ever be so great. Mm -hmm. I'm not anti-medicine. I'm just saying it's two dimensional. You've got to pay, be three dimensional. If you're playing checkers, some people call it drafts. You need to be starting to play chess. Chess is how the body works in magnum multiple folds. And doctors need to move away from the two-dimensional model of just treating the symptom or the one condition at a time. I'll lower the blood pressure. I'll lower the cholesterol. You can do all of that. Let me make a statement. When a doctor deals with a cardiac patient who may have had cardiac disease of some kind, in that patient, if they have control of the blood pressure, the blood sugar, the blood cholesterol, assuming it's high, they get a 25% reduction in heart attack, which is not very impressive because what they've done is controlled two-dimensional problems. Each one has value. And I'm not saying it's not the standard of care. It is the standard of care. It's what I offer everybody. But I just tell people, would you like to get more benefit than 25%? If so, then you need to start to think about the other dimensions that are not being addressed. Look, if you're a patient with multiple medical problems, then you ought to just consult your doctor before you embark on anything because you'll have a professional that can monitor you, you know, measure your sugars, measure your blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So I would just say mm -hmm. that as a caution. My experience is that you, I've never had a bad outcome from any of these. And, um, right. But if people are so fragile in their cardiac disease, they're very fragile with their, we call them brittle diabetics, then I think it's better to be cautious before you embark on any keto plan or an intermittent fasting plan or any plan. If you're so brittle, of so course. sensitive, definitely have it. And where you're on simple medication, I suspect there's very, very little risk. But uh, to be just um, conservative, let's say, if you're not on any medication, you just got little, you know, functional problems, you're a little obese, you know, you're not, you know, sleep is not that great, just feeling tired, everything's stiff and no one's given you any diagnosis, you're pretty safe to do the keto and the intermittent dieting, and I guarantee you'll have nothing but good results. So that was one bit, as you said, you might not even come to the third one, but the, the other two would be, I am assuming, 
uh, mobility, exercise, sleep? Yeah, because look, um, so instead of giving you single things, uh, when we just talked about, particularly the intermittent fasting, what I just described to you actually is intermittent stress. Anytime right. you have intermittent stress, your body starts to activate. That's where we're going in the mm. 21st century, right? We've got to start to activate, turn off signals that are bad, turn on signals that are good, and alter the signals. And you can alter the signals with, you know, nutraceuticals, that means your vitamins, or food. You can turn them on and off with lifestyle, like food, uh, you know, the diet. But what we're talking about is intermittent stressing. So high-intensity mm. interval training is an intermittent stress. Fasting right. is an intermittent stress. Hypothermia, right. that means high temperature, like a sauna, is a stress. There's so much data mm -hmm. out about these things, but they're all in isolation. And then hypothermia, like cryo, is an intermittent stress. And so, see, so what's going mm -hmm. on is that for the majority of the Western Hemisphere, the life is a little bit too easy and too comfortable. And we get yeah. into an environment, and that environment is not working out very well for us. So, you know, uh, what I would say is that, um, let me give you an a, a analogy, that comfortable environment. You know, we, we th th turn the thermostat to keep it comfortable in the car, outside the car, in the bed, outside the bed. But more profound might be, you know, in the gym, when I go to the gym, everyone's wiping everything down and using hand sterilizer. And people are using uh, mouthwashes. You're sterilizing every single thing. And that's a problem because you're not allowing the body to get stressed and being exposed to certain things, right? It's just an mm -hmm. analogy, right? You want to sure, you sure, believe sure. you are vaccinating every single thing under the sun. There's a place for it. But be careful about overdoing it and not stressing the systems because the systems were inherently designed to be stressed so that we can overcome those adversities, right? Without food, we don't just die off. Without sleep, we right. don't just die. With the temperature, we don't mm -hmm. just fall apart. This is all through evolution, right? So just be careful about making your life too comfortable. And I'm not saying, you know, go and uh, work in a boot camp or anything. I'm just saying that there's enough science to, to uh, alter these molecular signals through interventions, which, as you correctly said, they're natural. And, um, you know, there's even exciting medications that we know can slow down the aging process. Again, by accident. We didn't realize this. But that's a little bit complicated to discuss on this occasion. And um, we may move away from dementia and the brain and the gut and then start talking about cancer, which, um, you know, that in itself will be a very specific topic. I think if I, I'm going to summarize here, I would say be moderate, vary uh, your diet, vary your lifestyle. A little bit of hunger and pain and temperature, high and low is good for you. A little bit mm -hmm. of the mobility with some intensity, not all for one hour, just high intensity just for a minute or so. Be active. And, um, and then, um, so if I just uh, say another important one, that when I was describing that during the sleep cycle, your temperature is supposed to drop by three degrees, and then your brain can detoxify. There was another bit of science that showed that somebody uh, who felt, uh, was being studied during their sleep cycle in an MRI chamber, they were able to look at the fluid in the brain, CSF, cerebrospinal fluid, and they saw how it altered 
whilst they measured the electrical activity in the brain, like an EEG. There was a synchronous wave of movement of this fluid during the sleep cycle. What they observed right. was, as the electrical activity was being monitored, blood was flowing in and out of the blood vessels, which stirred the movement of the CSF fluid. And when you have that, people have restful sleep. So just like a brain temperature drops by three degrees and you feel uh, refreshed when you wake up versus people who feel groggy when they wake up, maybe their yeah. temperature didn't drop, but the only way to know is to measure it. The other one, which as I said, is just very f recent uh, study showed that, that you need movement of that fluid during your sleep cycle. So as you go through the uh, light sleep to the deep sleep, that's when these things are happening. So if you've got a lot mm -hmm. of things going on in your mind and you're stressed out subconsciously, you may have a pattern in the fluid movement that is not ideal. And then you wake up feeling unrested. You know, yeah. Sleep is very, very powerful. But the, so I, at the beginning, I started saying the power of the brain. First, we want to look at the environment of the brain, the environment that is conducive to good health of the brain versus an environment that's not so good for the health of the brain. So if I'm going to mm -hmm. finish, I'll start off by saying, you know, protect your sleep. So I have five pillars and that first pillar has always been, and the evidence is only pointing to it more and more every day is do not interrupt or do not compromise your sleep. When you were young and youthful and vibrant and energetic, we will, you know, unfortunately damage, including myself, damage ourselves in pursuit of success. Now, as I'm older and wiser, I say, you know, but slow down. And that's what I try to teach my children that despite their hectic schedule, you know, I want them to have good sleep. The mm -hmm. second pillar mm -hmm. is do not put bad things into your uh, body for the reasons I said, they will, they will not be good fuel for your microbes in the gut. Then nourish them with good food, nourish the good microbes. Mm -hmm. It's not about calories in and calories out. It's what is the nutrient and how does it signal to the body? And that signal right. is controlled by the microbes. Next is mm -hmm. supplement. Start adding the vitamin D because most of the people in the American population are low on vitamin D. The range is Correct. between 30 and, and, uh, 100, and nine, 100. It's gone up from 80 to 100. And where are people now? They're lucky if they're 30. Be optimal, right? Mm -hmm. you, know, you can even measure mm -hmm. your omega-3 level. Be optimal. But, um, yeah. So going back to um, taking supplements is, you know, most people need B12. They're very low on B12. They'll need vitamin D. Now, I measure everything, so I don't need to guess. But um, some people say, oh, you don't need anything else. Well. Well, you know, the fact is you do, and um, you definitely know you need vitamin D now and you need B12. And, you know, you, uh, people like myself will tell you you need omega-3 because most people are deficient on it and many other vitamins like B vitamins, amino acids, minerals, and so forth. And the final one in my five pillar, because I'm a, I'm a very intense physician, because so I don't just give dietary advice and supplementation. I actually engage in modalities that require infusions of special things that activate the body, whether I infuse vitamins or I infuse uh, agents to detox the body or I infuse uh, peptides that are messengers. So that's my step five is the, to really go to the higher level. Uh, those are generally to, to support the physiology of the body. It's never using, very rarely using a drug, but there is a time and a place for using a drug, but you have to be careful about it. You can't just rely on one modality. So those are my five sure. principles is do not disrupt the sleep, do not put bad food into your body. Try to put good food into your body. After putting good food into your body, supplement. That means take a vitamin, 
starting with the vitamin D and a B12 and a fish oil, in my opinion, probably more, but measure before you do it. And then the final one is um, after supplementing, then some people would benefit from power infusions. And that's kind of what I do. Wow, wow, Dr. Habib, it has been absolutely uh, empowering, really, to, for, for you to explain to us uh, the power of the brain, the power of the gut, and how everything is so closely related. Uh, you're, you're lovely, well. lovely. If you want to learn more uh, about it, I mean, so under nexthealth.org, you'll find some information. So Next Health is, as it sounds, next, N-E-X-T, health, H-E-A-L-T-H dot org so if people want to learn more they'll have some information on that website and on the website there'll be some social media content so there'll be a lot, a lot of videos to watch as well absolutely listeners i have seen dr habib's videos and i will be putting um, the website address uh, in the show notes so definitely definitely visit thank you dr habib you're very welcome let's do this again Thank you so much for listening and we would be most humbled if you can leave us with a comment, a rating or a suggestion. Thank you.